I've also found with women, especially moms, that when they get to the end of the day and they put the kids to bed, and maybe their partner goes to bed, those last hours are the time when they have to themselves. And so part of what I've found is helpful is to say, okay, let's go with that. Hello, and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Okay, before we get started, I'd like to share with you this lovely review from a listener called Midnight T21 on the Apple Podcast platform. It's entitled Incredible Content. Thank you so much for bringing the world this extremely valuable free content. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much, Midnight T. I really value your feedback and these reviews, and I'm just so glad these conversations have helped others as much as they have helped me. Thank you so much for listening, and I think this is honestly the longest I've ever kept up with anything consistent. So... I really have to say it's thanks to reviews like these and this incredibly supportive community and, of course, the abundance of fascinating, brilliant ADHD women from around the globe who have shared their stories each week. So thank you, everyone. I am really feeling the love today. Okay, here we are at episode 99, in which I interview Anna Bartolucci. Anna is a licensed psychologist, certified behavioral sleep medicine specialist, and the founder and chief psychologist of Atlanta Insomnia and Behavioral Health Services. She's also adjunct faculty at Emory University and enjoys sharing her knowledge as an author, speaker, trainer, and now writing coach. And when she's not helping people sleep, she is a USA Today bestselling author of Urban Fantasy and Steampunk under her not-so-secret pen name, Cecilia Dominic. Anna and I talk about what led to her own diagnosis in adulthood, and we also discuss her book, Better Sleep for the Overachiever. We talk about some of the more common sleep issues experienced by adults with ADHD, such as delayed circadian rhythms, restless sleep, and revenge bedtime procrastination. We also talk about healthy sleep etiquette for adults with ADHD and the benefits of productive relaxation. If you like today's interview and maybe have some more questions for Anna, I have great news. She will be our featured expert in the Women in ADHD online community for the month of October, so stay tuned. That's right, every month we feature live Q&As with experts, and those are always recorded and archived for our members. We just recently had a great one on ADHD and medications, and coming up in September, the topic will be ADHD and RSD, rejection-sensitive dysphoria. And then, of course, in October, we'll have Anna back. If you haven't yet joined us over in the online community, head over now to womenandadhd.com, and you can always find that link in the show notes. Without further ado, here is my interview with Anna Bartolucci. Enjoy. All right. Well, uh, I'm so glad we are finally having this conversation, Anna, after all of the back and forth, and uh, I'm so thrilled to have you here. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. I'm really excited to hear you your story. Oh, thank you so much, Katie. I'm really excited to be here because yeah, I discovered your podcast soon after my own diagnosis. And I was like, Oh, wow, these are these are my people. <laughs> uh, I love hearing that. And I love kind of being able to have guests on the podcast who sort of, you know, listen to it as well early on in their journey, because it just sort of feels it feels like a nice cathartic experience, right? Okay, so so let's get started with, you know, when were you diagnosed with ADHD? And kind of what was happening in your life at the time that you started to connect the dots and start to think, okay, maybe this is ADHD? Yeah, so I never in the world thought I had ADHD. Because when I was growing up, and I think I'm slightly younger than you are, but I was thinking back through my elementary school journey, which was pretty much in the 80s. And I remember a couple of students who um, I later figured out had ADHD, but of course they were the little boys who couldn't sit still. And I was always the daydreamer. You know, I was always doing flights of fancy. I was doodling, still paying attention. Actually, the doodling helped me to pay attention, helped me to focus. But it was interesting because I started 
a few years ago looking at or seeing articles with by women who had been late life diagnoses and thinking, wow, a lot of this sounds like me. And I have a mentor here in the Atlanta area who's both a good friend and a mentor, and she's been diagnosed with ADHD for forever. And so we would talk about some of my struggles, for example, not being able to do things consistently enough to be able to get to the next level in my writing career. And she would say, oh yeah, that sounds a lot like ADHD. That sounds very similar. I'm like, oh, I don't have ADHD. I'm not hyper. I'm very successful. I'm, you know, I always made good grades because, you know, we have that dichotomy in our heads that if you were smart and did well in school, then you can't have ADHD. Well, and doctors tell us this. Yes. And I know from listening to your podcast that that is not true. Shout out to Jules. <laughs> so, yeah, so I never thought it could be me. But then last year was really rough. Of course, I'm a psychologist, a sleep psychologist. And there has been incredibly high demand at the practice to the point that I was lucky enough to find and bring on another practitioner. I only have her part time. I would love to have her full time because we definitely have the work. And people have just been so much more high distress than they were before the pandemic, which I think you've probably found as well. So I was having all of that demand in my professional life. I had four deaths last year, both in de- you know, varying degrees of closeness. And it was the fourth one that happened at the end of October that I say broke me, that pretty much wiped out the rest of my existing mental resources and November is National Novel Writing Month. So that's when people will sit down and try to bang out 50,000 words of a novel in 30 days. Typically, I've done it successfully, but I was just sitting down and nothing was coming. And typically, creativity has been my outlet. And I thought, okay, something is wrong. So I finally reached out to a colleague of mine who does testing and We sat down and did it, and he was skeptical at first. He said, are you sure? He's like, what makes you think? But then he asked me some interesting questions like, well, how have you managed and how have you coped to this point if you do have ADHD? And I told him I've gotten very good at delegating. I have a wonderful office manager who takes care of the little picky detail things that my brain doesn't like to do. She keeps me on task with things. She keeps me accountable. We've put in systems and routines so that things are done at certain times so that I don't have to actually think about it. And I've also relied a lot on my husband. Like, for example, today he's doing laundry because laundry is one of those tasks that I have just never been able to do because it's a task that requires doing something and then a pause and doing something and then a pause. And my brain in the pauses just goes elsewhere and doesn't want to come back. And you're nodding like, yeah, that sounds a lot like us. (laughs) So I finally got my diagnosis in January. I'm lucky that I I will acknowledge my privilege that I am in the mental health field and was able to get in with somebody quickly because they are a friend and a a colleague. So yeah, I've just been diagnosed since January. Wow. Um, Okay. Well, that answers my question about whether you were diagnosed when you wrote the book, because I know that there were some parts in in the book, which we will get to later on, uh, but there were some parts, especially at the end when you talk about procrastination, where you do mention ADHD. And so that's why I was curious if you had written the book um, or if you had already kind of put some of these pieces together in your own life when you were writing the book or if you were diagnosed and then went back and looked at your book through this whole new lens where you're like, oh, yeah, this all makes sense. Because <laughs> that's what happened to me with my book about binge eating. So anyway, but I'll get to that. Uh, I really want to get back to some of the things, you know, you had mentioned being a great student and a doodler. After your diagnosis, you know, we go over the whole course of our life through this, with this new lens. And it's just so intense and, (laughs) and, and mind blowing. And I think um, I have yet to meet somebody who was diagnosed, maybe they exist, but I've yet to meet somebody who was diagnosed with ADHD. And they're like, Oh, yeah, no biggie. Uh, (laughs) You know, uh, usually it's this journey of, of grief and, and elation. And it's such a roller coaster. So I'm curious, with your background in psychology and uh, and and um, advanced degrees, like what was it like going back for you and looking back and thinking, oh yeah, the signs were there all along? It was definitely, I guess it was an ambivalent process when you know, where you feel more than one strong emotion at the same time. On one hand, it would have been nice to know 
that I had ADHD and could have potentially used a little bit of help and maybe a little bit of understanding. On the other hand, it's been nice to go back and look at some of the stupid things I did when I was younger and say, oh, that's why. So I've been a lot more compassionate to my younger self as a result, which has definitely been nice and healing. I wrote down some of the things that I've seen pop up in articles. One big thing that would have been nice to know was the emotional reactivity dysphoria. Oh my gosh. Like I remember at times in my life when somebody ghosted me, you know, before ghosting was actually a term and becoming frantic of what did I do? What happened? How can I fix this? What's wrong with me? I also have times in my life when I would misinterpret instructions and I would, you know, get lower grades on certain assignments as a result. But of course, then I would overcompensate afterwards to not do that. And another thing that came to mind was I, before Outlook calendars became a widely used thing, or at least a widely used thing in my life, I would have a hard time remembering things that were out of my normal routine. So for example, I was on a committee when I was in graduate school and I could never remember to make the meetings, which was so out of character with me. And I'm wondering why did nobody, why didn't none of these psychologists around me catch this? But yeah, I could never remember to make the meetings. And yes, I would write them in my planner, but then I would never look at the planner. And then when I got into the work world, especially when I was working in a regular nine to five for somebody else, where it was somebody else dictating my schedule and my workload, I would go home at the end of the day, just feeling what I would call soul weary. I would be so exhausted and I thought it was burnout. But then I would recover and I would be fine for a couple of days and then I would have it again. And now I realized that was probably attention and executive function fatigue that I was feeling because I was having to manage all these things that were outside of the things that my brain wanted to do or found it easy to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I re- I'm, I'm experiencing that right now. Um, I'm taking a college level course for the summer and there was a part of me that was like, oh, this will be great. This will be fun. And I realized it's, it's, you know, for the first time I've taken a college level course in 20, almost 25 years and realizing how much attention is, or how much of my brain bandwidth is required <laughs> and, and it holds to it. Even like, it's been very difficult for me to partition like studying time versus work time and everything else. And like realizing how just that like internalized work-life balance is really, really exhausting and really difficult. Like I'm finding the transitions are very difficult. And it's been through the, you know, since this diagnosis, it's been very meta to like realize all of this happening in real time. And yeah, and uh, that that term weary really like hit me, you know, it, that idea of just how much mental energy is required for certain tasks that don't seem like they should require it, or at least other people don't don't require it, right? And then of course, the flip side is tasks that are difficult for other people feel effortless to us, right? <laughs> like hyperfocus and rabbit holes and all of those things. Uh, you're like, oh, yeah, you know, no biggie. Yeah, that was one of the interesting things that my husband observed. He's like, you don't have any trouble focusing. In fact, I have trouble getting you to stop focusing. And so I was like, oh, well, there's that hyperfocus piece, piece definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. And obviously, I've talked so much about not relating to the hyperactivity initially and just feeling like, I don't know what you're talking about. I feel overwhelming paralysis a lot of the time and having no, really just never thinking about what was causing the paralysis or how intimately uh, uh, related to hyperactivity paralysis is, right? And how that shows up for so many of us. And And then we end up thinking that we're lazy. And to me, laziness was the opposite of hyperactivity. Right. Yeah. It was interesting. I had a time when I was trying to manage a lot of different things, of course, long before my diagnosis, when I complained to my office managers, like, I'm just lazy because I can't get any of these things done. And she looked at me, she said, Anna, you are the least lazy person I know. Uh, Yeah. That was sort of the conversations I was having with my therapist at the time when she was really like, dude, look into ADHD. Because I think it was, she was seeing such a difference between my sense of self and how I was viewing and explaining myself in our sessions versus the evidence of what I was doing Mm -hmm. and accomplishing in my life. She was the one who would have to mirror that back to me and be like, don't you see how different, you know, how you're viewing yourself versus what is actually happening. So how did you end up specializing in sleep and, and um, what's the word I'm looking for? 
studies. <laughs> oh, behavioral sleep medicine. Oh, behavioral. Yes. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So this is a, an interesting journey. When I got ready to apply for internship, I looked for experiences outside of our little psychology clinic and the UGA clinical program. And I reached out to some alums in the Atlanta area because I was in Athens and Atlanta was only, you know, hour, hour and a half drive away, depending on traffic and construction and all that fun stuff. I ended up getting responses back from a couple of them, one of whom was a private practice psychologist, and the other was Michael Bruce, who is still a friend and a mentor. And he was working at a practice here in Decatur, which is on the, I guess you could say on the sort of east part of the Atlanta area. And he said, yeah, sure, you can come work with me, you know, maybe an hour or an afternoon every other week and let's see how it goes. And he was doing general sleep medicine. So I ended up going to work with him. We really hit it off. By the end of that academic year, I think I was doing two days a week in the practice. So I was getting really familiar with general sleep medicine. And then when I went on internship, and to explain to those of your listeners who don't understand the psychology training program, so what we do is we have a certain number of years in our program in our, you know, in our school. And then we go off for a year and work in an actual intense clinical setting. So in my case, I went to the Central Arkansas VA because I figured going to a VA hospital, I would pretty much see anything. I would be prepared for everything, which was not untrue. I saw a lot. I did a lot. I'm very happy for that experience. And they knew I had an interest in sleep medicine, in behavioral sleep medicine. I was one of the health psych interns. And so when I was getting ready to go on my second rotation, the rotation supervisor came to me and said, I have a mission for you from God. And I said, oh, really? From God? And he said, yes, God wants you to go to the head of the sleep lab here, head of the sleep medicine area and tell them that you want to work with him while you're on my rotation. So there we go. My, you know, my little intern self, I'm in my early twenties and said, Hey, would you, would you let me work with you? And it was this very door uh, pulmonologist and he's like, Oh, okay, fine. And so I ended up working with him on that rotation. So I got some more experience and he liked me. And apparently that experience is still going for the interns there, which I'm super proud of. And then I came back and at that point, my program, which thankfully no longer does this, made us go back for a year to supervise the younger students. And also that's when I did my dissertation. And when I was getting ready to graduate, Mike Bruce was getting ready to leave. And so I basically just slotted into his spot at that practice. And they were super supportive of me during my early career. They paid for my licensure process. They paid for my extra certification in behavioral sleep medicine. And then a few years later, I went into private practice because of that soul weariness. I realized that that was not the best fit for me. There were some other things going on. And so, yeah, I've been in my practice since 2008 and have never looked back. Oh, interesting. I guess you can't really specialize in sleep studies without dealing with kind of the inability to sleep. So at what point did you start really specializing? Or I guess, what was the inspiration for the book, your book, Better Sleep for the Overachiever and kind of talking about so the busy brain and perfectionism and how that affects sleep? When I was in that medical setting, I was very limited in what I could do with my insomnia patients. And that was one of the big reasons I went into private practice. So I could be more of a psychologist rather than a sort of a assistant medical professional almost. And so that's when I really started seeing more insomnia patients. Even at this point, 85 to 90% of my practice is focused on insomnia treatment. And I found myself having the same conversation over and over again and noticing this one personality type that I would see repeatedly. And they were the overachiever types, the ones with, you know, some of them have the type A personality, some of them don't, but they're all very motivated by achievement and they have that perfectionistic quality. And a lot of that is what keeps them up at night, what keeps them mind racing. And so I thought, huh, this is an interesting pattern. I did propose it to a couple of publishers, and one of them said, we don't 
it was an academic publisher that did my uh, business basics for private practice book. They said, we don't really do self-help. And then the other one said, well, you know, there's not really a scientific basis for this overachiever type, so we can't publish a book on it. So I said, okay, fine, I'll do it on my own. So that's what made me go into do the independent publishing. I'd already been independent publishing my fiction for years. So I knew how the process worked. But that's basically the, the genesis for Better Sleep for the Overachiever. And I also wanted to talk not only about the sleep issues, because of course everybody's heard the sleep recommendations, but what are the other pieces that I've noticed that go into the sleep disturbance at night? Yeah, I, I think that was really interesting. Part of your book, just like, debunking some of the myths around, um, you know, what we should be doing. Because I think as, as a woman with ADHD, I'm not alone and always feeling like I should be doing something and yet it's not working for me, right? And like, I remember trying melatonin to get to sleep and it was like had the opposite effect and, <laughs> and often being like, huh, that's interesting, but never really looking much into it. What are some of the sleep strategies that we are, are often recommended, but you realize now kind of with your, you know, with the new insight into a neurodivergent brain like that, uh, what are some of the strategies that might actually make it worse? So one of the ones that we often hear is go to bed at the same time every single night. Whereas if somebody isn't sleepy enough, that's just going to cause them to lie awake in bed longer, which is then going to feed into the insomnia process, which is basically that the association between bed and sleep has gotten broken. And bed gets associated with anxiety and negative emotions rather than with rest. And it's been interesting trying to break my patience of that. It's like, well, I go to bed at the same time every single night, and they're often very proud of it. And so then we have to talk about, okay, is that really working for you? Yeah, that's a question that I end up asking a lot, especially with my neurodivergent clients. And it's interesting because, slight tangent, I've always had this fascination with ADHD and sleep. When I lectured to the sleep fellows and the psychiatry fellows, each of the other disorders in sleep have one, maybe two slides, and ADHD for years has had its own section <laughs> because it is a complicated relationship. Another thing that I've noticed is you know, a lot of people have this myth that they should get up early in order to be productive because there's this huge myth in our society that only morning people get things done. <laughs> which I know I wrote about in the book with my own struggles with that. I know from being in the group that other people have definitely struggled with that as well. And the truth is that this is one of my soapboxes, that people should be able to live and work and sleep on their body's natural rhythm. And one thing we know about people with ADHD is that they tend to be a little bit more phase delayed. So our internal clocks are set a little bit later than the 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. sleep schedule that the rest of the world and school systems and jobs want us to keep. So that's another thing. It's fighting against that. And a lot of times people have more flexibility than they realize, especially now with so many more people working from home and being able to set their own hours better. But a lot of times they don't think I should be able to advocate for that. That is really unfortunate. And I, I feel like I've spoken to a lot of women too who are stuck in that trap of, you know, working from home and feeling constantly guilty because their productivity is not kind of ebbs and flows throughout the day. And yet they sort of feel like they have to be stuck at their screen all day long and at, at a certain time. And it just feels like so unfortunate. And like, why can't we? Why can't we just get what we need to get done? And not have to worry about, you know, how, how we're showing up or how we're being viewed. But yeah, that's another tangent. Yeah, exactly. It's like, let's definitely be working smarter, not harder, even though I hate that expression. <laughs> but it's, uh, oh, and my, basically I've got my fidget thing here. <laughs> I've got, it's a wrist dress and it's got little things in it that are semicircular. So I, I end up playing with them uh, just in case anybody else is listening and fidgeting. <laughs> okay. Yes. The, the workflow. I just recently in July, I have figured out a couple of things about my own workflow that might be helpful for others. First, I had originally last year, once you know, I realized, okay, this telehealth practice is going to be a semi-permanent thing. And at this point, I'm still only seeing three or four in-person patients per week. The rest of it is all virtual. And I figured out that I can't do as many virtual sessions in a day as I can in-person sessions. And I suspect it's not only because, you know, when you have virtual sessions, as we are looking at each other, we're only getting, you know, 
mid chest and up. So we're missing a lot of the nonverbals that you would normally get. And in sleep, we're kind of obsessed with feet. We like to see what people are doing with their feet because that can help us to chase down other things. So there was that. And also, I believe with the neurodivergent brain, it's hard to maintain that level of focus on just one thing. So I realized, okay, well, first let me make my writing time in the morning and then my patient time to the middle of the day and evening. And I realized after about a year that wasn't working because between my phase delay and my trouble getting started on things that I was not doing what I needed to do in the morning. So this month I have done a couple of things for my, uh, my brain, which is I now only see three telehealth patients in a row before I get a break. And I've also started with patients at nine o'clock in the morning because I know I will get up and show up for somebody at nine o'clock better than I will show up for my own self and for my own stuff, which I feel guilty admitting that, but it's worked beautifully and it's true. And I really like stopping at four o'clock in the afternoon and just having the rest of the afternoon to do what I need and what I want to do. Mm, Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. I feel like I've had a few conversations about the sort of recognizing biorhythms, especially from throughout the day and kind of what sort of work uh, I do best at different times of the day and why. And it's been, yeah, it's been super helpful for me to not only get what I need to get done and not always sort of feel like, oh God, why isn't this working? You know, not trying to jam things, um, but also realizing, like you said, like why certain things can be more draining than others. And that's really fascinating about the the um, needing to see so many visual cues, right? Uh, in, in your profession. That's really interesting. I'd like to take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this podcast. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you know, I am a big proponent of therapy. Therapy provides me the best opportunity for verbal processing, something that is so important for my kind of brain and my sense of self. What I love about BetterHelp is that it's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy that's done securely online from the comfort of your home. They assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and it's available for clients worldwide. So you get access to a broad range of expertise that might not be available to you locally. It also tends to be more affordable than traditional offline therapy, and financial aid is available. If you visit their website and read their testimonials, there are actually quite a few reviews that specifically reference health with ADHD. As a special offer for listeners of the Women and ADHD podcast, you'll get 10% off your first month. Simply sign up at betterhelp.com slash women ADHD. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash women ADHD. And there's a link in the show notes. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Any other parents out there who have struggled to instill good financial habits into their kids? I know I have. And that's why I'm so excited to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode, Go Henry by Acorns, the smart debit card and app for kids 6 through 18. With Go Henry, kids can learn about money, set spending and saving goals, and even track chores and earn allowance money right within the app. They learn the value of money by using their Go Henry debit cards, while we as parents can set spend limits and help guide their journey while staying informed every step of the way. It gives me so much peace of mind to know that I'm using a smart tool to proactively teach my kids about money and prepare them for future success. Set your kids up for success and get started today at gohenry.com slash women ADHD. Again, that's gohenry.com slash women ADHD. TNCs apply, renews from $4.99 per month unless canceled. I'm curious about revenge bedtime procrastination. That's something that's talked about a lot with ADHD. And I actually have never really had, I I used to be a very late, uh, a night owl. I used to always stay up until like three or four in the morning. But now that I'm older, I'm more of like a in bed by nine (laughs) 30. Right. And, and up at five. So it's fascinating to me when I hear a lot of women talking about revenge bedtime procrastination, because it's not something I've necessarily ever related to uh, what I my sleep struggles involve going to bed, not having a hard time falling asleep, but I wake up at, you know, two or three in the morning, wide awake, where my brain is like, let's go over our to do list for the week. (laughs) Uh, But I'm curious, like, what insights have you had into that? You know, why? Why do we do it? What even is it? And and why is somebody with ADHD more likely to kind of stay up late and have that that later rhythm phase delay? From what I've read, revenge bedtime procrastination is basically 
because people have been responding to everybody else's demands all day. They resist going to bed because that is the time that they have to do their things and the things that they enjoy. I suspect it's even more with the ADHD brain because of that phase delay. Because I've had so many of my patients with ADHD say, 9 p.m. is when I really wake up. It's when my brain really wants me to do things. And so it can be harder to not take advantage of that. I've also found with women, especially moms, that when they get to the end of the day and they put the kids to bed, and maybe their partner goes to bed, those last hours are the time when they have to themselves. And so part of what I've found is helpful is to say, okay, let's go with that. Let's find things that you can do during that time and give yourself some flexibility, but try to make sure that you're off screens from within an hour of bedtime so that your brain has a chance to start winding down. And so you're not interfering with your own natural melatonin release, which is what happens when we are on screens late. Plus a lot of what we do on screens tends to be activating. So when it comes to the revenge bedtime procrastination, it's you know taking revenge on the rest of your life, basically. But in the end, again, how well is it really working for you? And see what is it that you are actually getting out of that? And can you fulfill those needs in a different way or in a more useful way? Mm, I want to get back to the, the idea of one hour of no screens, because this was this is something that's really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And I, <laughs> I, I, really, it is. I mean, I, I genuinely um, have tried many times to wind down before bedtime. And like I said, I don't really have a hard time falling asleep. And so but I think I do what you uh, talked about earlier, which is like, I don't go to bed until I'm actually really, really tired. But I like to listen to audiobooks. And so when I'm listening to an audiobook, in order to focus on the book and pay attention to the book, I need to be doing something. And so often I will be playing like solitaire or something on my phone. So I'm staring at the screen right up until I go to bed. And I know that in theory, that's terrible. But I'm like, I don't literally don't know what else to do. Like, like, uh, what do you do? Like, it seems so silly, but, but also so indicative of our addiction to television and our phones and our computer, like without a screen, I literally have no idea what to do, uh, for that one hour, um, that won't make me more awake. You know what I mean? Like there's like, if I try to read a book, I will immediately fall asleep. And so then I'm like, well, do I push the one hour earlier? (laughs) because of that, like, what do you, what exactly does a typical, what do you typically recommend somebody do during that one hour? That's very individual, but think about, okay, what are you doing when you're playing the cards? You are doing something that is semi-structured and that requires a little bit of focus. And I believe they still do make for real cards. (laughs) That's true. Okay. So that might be something to try is to play solitaire with real cards as opposed to on the phone. Yeah. All right. I'll try that in bed because that's what I usually do. I listen to it in bed. I, I thought about that actually when I was listening to the book, to your book too. I was like, what would I even do? Because I, you know, another, we, we have imposed screen free time for a huge window on Saturday, uh, on Sunday with our entire family. And it is really interesting because we really, we all do it. It's enforced and we all hate it. And it's like an addiction. Like you can feel the addiction, right? The impulse to all every 10 seconds. One of us is like, ah, yeah, how, what time is it? How much longer do we have? Uh, and so one of the kind of loopholes I've gotten is to listen to a book. And if I'm not like puttering, puttering around doing chores, I will color. And <laughs> so I thought about that. I was like, well, I suppose I could color. But then there's the sort of petulant child version of me that's like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do any of that. Like, I just want to be on my screen. So, But since I'm not falling, having difficulty falling asleep, what damage am I actually doing? Like, is my using my phone all the way up until falling asleep, is that contributing to my waking up in the middle of the night? Quite possibly. <sighs> all right. <laughs> This is not psychological advice by any means, but I can tell you from having looked at, at this point, tens of thousands of sleep diaries that, yes, late screen use does contribute to middle of the night awakening. Yeah, I was afraid of that. (laughs) Yeah. Also, possibly doing this entire pre-bedtime routine in bed rather than the last 15 to 20 minutes. 
Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because, yeah, a lot of people do have that myth that, okay, well, I can do whatever I want up to bedtime if I'm falling asleep, okay? And I actually do have a handout for you and your listeners on five sleep myths that might be keeping you from sleeping. And that's one of them. You know, some of them are in the book, some of them are not. And it's because of that, it keeps you from releasing your brain from releasing its own natural melatonin. It is activating to the brain in other ways because sunlight, that 520 to 580 nanometer wavelength, I think, is one of our body's main signals for when it's time to be awake. Even if you're using something on the screen like night shift or flux, it's still not blocking all of that signal. And so you're dampening your own melatonin. You're telling your brain it's time to be awake. And at the beginning of the night, your sleep drive is probably high enough that that's covering that up. But of course, as you sleep, the sleep drive goes down, which means all the other stuff is going to emerge. So what I found with my neurodivergent patients is yes, to do something that is a combination like you were describing. So listening to an audiobook or a podcast while drawing or coloring or doodling or playing cards with real cards, maybe having a few different options so that you can say, okay, what do I feel like doing tonight? Or what do I least feel like not doing tonight? And perhaps doing that regularly. But if, on the other hand, not holding yourself to it with such a perfectionistic standard that you're going to feel like a complete failure if you don't and then give up. Realizing that it's a learning process. Okay, I need to figure out what my pre-bedtime routine can be without screens. And maybe it's weaning yourself. Okay, I'm going to let that last half hour be screen-free at first. And then gradually moving that earlier, once you figure out you can do it. And you know, sometimes people even have to start with, okay, that last 15 minutes is going to be screen-free. Sorry, you look so disappointed. <laughs> no, I know. Well, no, I'm just laughing because they, I'm like, of course, it's obvious that the, you would have a sort of gradual workup to that. Uh, and and so I'm just laughing at how I'm like, there's there's nothing gradual about us. Like, it's so true, right? Which is like, how can I be the best at this immediately? And I really, really struggle with that one. And so, and but I, for the many people who I'm sure who are listening, who have the more common issue of racing mind, not being able to fall asleep, so they end up watching television or or drinking. That's another thing I did a lot in my 20s and 30s, which was I relied on alcohol to put me to sleep. What are some of the ways that you you know would recommend? Um, you know, less problematic, healthier way to kind of start to wind down and turn your minds off. That's definitely a big one. The mind racing, I would have to say after I can't sleep, I can't turn my mind off is the biggest complaint that I hear. And a lot of times I find that by delaying bedtime a little bit and implementing a pre-bedtime routine, people find that they have much less trouble with that because they're not activating their mind right up until bedtime, even though they feel like they are relaxing. So for the people who feel like they need to watch television to fall asleep, think about, okay, what, did it, what is it? Is it the fact that you are actually watching something or is it the fact that you are listening to a story? So maybe it's weaning from the television to audiobooks or podcasts. And one of the other things that I found about people who are watching television to fall asleep is that they are often listening to something that is very familiar. Like for some reason, friends is one of those things that puts a lot of people to sleep. It's like, yeah, I'll put on an I'll put on an episode of friends because I've seen them all a million times and I know exactly what's going to happen. So I don't quite have to pay attention. So in that case, maybe weaning from television to music or to something that's going to go off I mean, you definitely, whatever it is, you want it to go off within a half an hour of your target bedtime so that you're not listening to it all night because that can definitely disrupt your sleep. Our brains pay attention to words. So perhaps it's weaning to music or in that last hour, weaning from television to podcast or audiobook plus something else that is slightly engaging but isn't going to suck you in and make you want to do it all night, which I find is a big problem if I try to read fiction before bed. I, I will often be up way later than I really want to be because I get caught up in it and want to finish it, especially if I get towards the end of a book. So I have found out that I need to read nonfiction 
listening to stuff before bed doesn't really work for me, but it does for a lot of my neurodivergent patients because, again, it gives them something to sort of attach to so that they're not in their own thoughts. But yeah, I would say figure out what it is that you can do that will help you to get that same effect, but without the screens. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Back to the screens part. <laughs> I know. Um, now, an- another concept that you talk a lot about in the book, which is fascinating to me, is productive relaxation, which was something I hadn't really thought about. Because I always thought, you know, like, that's my husband to a T. Like, he, his downtime is always doing something, right? And I always thought of that as this sort of, like, weirdo manic energy, you know, that like for him, relaxation is cooking or baking or, you know, um, going around and putzing and fixing things. And he loves it. And he loves, uh, I think it's great for him. And, and it's very healthy for him. Whereas like, for me, my idea of relaxation is literally lying on the couch, scrolling my phone. And I'm like, hmm, I'm glad I'm married to somebody like him and not him. <laughs> Because for me, I'm just like, God, would you just stop, like slow down? Like it feels to me like that would not be relaxing. But when you brought up, you talked about productive relaxation and used like the example of gardening or, you know, some of these ways in which we can kind of burn off a little bit of energy in a relaxing way. It was such a light bulb moment for me where I was like, that might be what I need more than just lying around and feeling that like exhaustion and burnout all the time. Like I get, like it made so much sense to me and I don't, but I also don't know how to like actually start becoming more of that person because I, I don't know. Like, I just feel like when I am tired, I want to lie around. And so how, what do you suggest? Like, how do you get out of that association with relaxation or let's just backtrack a little. Why don't you sort of define productive relaxation? uh, First of all, when somebody engages in productive relaxation, they're doing something that uses a different part of the brain than they normally have to use in their line of work. So for example, with me being a psychotherapist during most of my day, productive relaxation might enjoy doing something that has me focused externally in a sensory way. So that might be gardening or like your husband, I'm all about the cooking and the baking. I find those things to be incredibly relaxing. Productive relaxation can also be useful for people who feel like if they're not accomplishing something, that they are not, I don't know, fulfilling their destiny or something that they have to have accomplishment as part of whatever it is they do. Uh, I actually took the Clifton Strengths Inventory late last year and found out that achievement was my number two, which helped me. (laughs) Okay, that's it. And so, and in part of the literature, they say, and so for people with this high achieving strength, it is actually okay and beneficial for them sometimes to work on weekends and vacations because that's just their strength and that's how they enjoy themselves. So I still try not to work on weekends and vacations, but at least if I do, I don't beat myself up for it. For people that's potentially what they need to do is to have something to show for their activity at the end. So for a lot of times for people that can be coloring, because you do have some a finished product, it can be woodworking for some people, it can be gardening, it can be assembling things, doing models. So in your case though, if you find that you're lying on the couch and scrolling the phone, helps you feel refreshed and rejuvenated afterwards, then that might actually be a valid relaxation thing for you. I sometimes need to do that myself. I just need to sit and I don't scroll social media. I have learned that that's uh, both a time suck and also makes me feel bad about myself. So I'll end up just reading whatever random articles Google pops up for me to read. Google knows me very well at this point. But, you know, some other times I feel like I need to get things done. So it just depends on energy level and also mental resource level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm the, very much the same. I am. Uh, I stay off social media as much as possible, which can be difficult with my job. But I, I do. I've noticed such a difference in my own um, mood and mental health when I have stayed far away. Uh, but yeah, I don't think it does help me feel refreshed and rejuvenated. And that's what I think is what was such a light bulb moment for me, which was like, I feel like it's probably actually making it worse. And that I would, you know, that idea of the, you know, the bedfellows of, of hyperactivity and paralysis, like, I feel like for somebody who has a lot of internalized hyperactivity, the idea of productive relaxation makes a lot of sense 
in terms of like, if I'm always feeling exhausted and always feeling tired, no matter how much I nap and no matter how much I lie around, usually the best thing for me to do is to get back into the habit of like walking a lot and going on hikes, right? And moving my body and then I sleep better. And so I always thought it was like, well, I'm improving the quality of my sleep, but I never thought about it in terms of like, what I need to feel refreshed and rejuvenated might not be lying around more. (laughs) It might actually be more movement. And then when I think about kind of um, the H element of ADHD, you know, even though we don't think of ourselves as hyperactive, I think a lot of our internalized hyperactivity is related to lack of movement, right? And it's almost like, it's almost like without enough movement, the hyperactivity then fosters uh, internalized, you know what I mean? And it's like finding more balance and, and why I think so many athletes who have ADHD, suddenly start to have all of this executive dysfunction issues when they have an injury or something keeps them, you know, or they retire or that. Anyway, it was a really interesting concept and I'm, I'm going to try it. It's just like, I'm just not there yet because I think I have such negative association with all of that, like putzing that my husband, I think I just have to find something that's interesting. But then when walking, actually, when, when you were talking about it, that's a huge one for me. And I always know, like, if I'm in a pissy mood and being really just like down and depressed, it's because I've gotten out of my walking routine. And it's not like I need to like become a competitive athlete or run a marathon. It's really just like going for a walk. Yeah. Or even if, you know, if the weather is not great, like here in Atlanta, it's going to be 92 degrees and humid today. So I might go for a walk later. I might not, I might go to the gym or I might just put on like a 20 minute yoga class and just do something to move. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I feel like I feel like whenever we talk about ADHD and physical movement, there's always like the eye rolls, you know, of just like with screen time, right? Which is like, oh, I know I'm supposed to do it. I know it's going to help me feel better. I just don't want to. Yeah, for me, like I recognize that. I, I recognize that inner child, and I'm like, yeah, you're right. It does. You don't want to do it. I totally get it. It's you don't feel like it, but we're still going to do it, right? <laughs> and then I, I talk to myself like I would a child where I'm just sort of like, but it needs to get done. And this is why, and you know, this is why, and I have sort of had those inner negotiations. And if you really want to do it, you can have some screen time afterwards and bribe your inner child like you bribe your regular children. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. Uh, That's the other thing too. And I do this with my kids too, which, you know, they'll come home from school and it's like three o'clock in the afternoon. And they're like, I'm, you know, and I'll just be like, this is the time to like, let's go out and rejuvenate and get and go for a walk or do something active because we've got you know, there's still six hours left in the day. And they're like, but I'm so tired. I just want to lie around. And then we, you know, I sort of have that conversation where I'm like, so what are you going to do? Are you literally just going to lie around for six hours? Like, let's think about how how to best figure out our afternoon. If we do this now, then you can lie around afterwards and not have to worry about anything else. When I was diagnosed with ADHD, it completely turned my world upside down. I looked back at so much of my life, my grades in school, my multiple careers and hobbies, my friendships, my marriage, motherhood, my relationship with food and my body, like all of this with a new lens. And it was overwhelming to say the least. If you've been diagnosed with ADHD and you're feeling blown away by this new insight into your brain and how it operates, I totally understand. I can help you begin to sort through this chaos, explore who you are and how your brain operates so you can finally start to lean into your strengths and begin to use them to your advantage moving forward. Together, we can work to identify what obstacles you've been facing and create strategies to help you start living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. Head over to womeninadhd.com coaching to book a 30-minute initial consult with me so we can figure out if my brand of one-on-one coaching is right for you. Again, that's womenandadhd.com slash coaching, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, 
and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex. And of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, It's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, really, it's a fantastic book. I recommend it. There'll definitely be a link in the show notes. And and you're also a prolific writer with uh, fiction. And so I guess that kind of segues into my question about what do you love most about your ADHD? Sorry for the cliched answer, but I have to say my creativity. <laughs> all, all that daydreaming did me some good when I was younger. Because, yes, I always found my imaginary worlds to be so much more interesting than the real mundane world. And so I feel that that translated into fiction, and I've written since I was a kid. So that's always been a coping thing for me as well, whether it's working out stuff emotionally or just giving myself something to distract. But also, yes, productive relaxation, because by the end of it, you have a story, you have something to show for it. It's also fun to exercise my creative problem solving. Like I, I like to say that, you know, of course people see the connection between me being a psychologist to making me a better writer, but I feel like being a creative writer and author has made me a better psychologist because I end up bringing that creativity into every realm of what I do. And I think it also helps because I can hold on to different storylines and different worlds in my head that other people might not be able to, to do. Like I asked, I told my best friend who is a high school English teacher when I was diagnosed with ADHD, and she is really the only person who said, I'm not surprised. Because, you know, typically the reaction I would get is, no, you're not. <laughs> And she said, you're all, she said, I'm not surprised. I said, why? She said, because you are terrible at multitasking. She said, but you have all of these things going on and you can go from one to the other. Then, okay, that's a good explanation. I do require transition time, but I am able to do both in the same day. Interesting. Yeah, that is a fascinating kind of contradiction because I there are some things in terms of juggling that I feel like I can be really great at, like very sharp and and have a lot of spinning plates. But at the same time, like I was saying before with the school and and suddenly this one class is dominating all of my bandwidth and and I am having a lot of hard times transitioning. And I know my, you know, a lot of us do have some difficulties, you know, in the fall and transitioning from season to season and some of those things that can can be difficult. It feels like such an interesting contradiction. But yeah, uh, no, that makes total sense to me in terms of the creative worlds, how that influences psychology, your, you know, your view as a psychologist, because psychology is so much about connecting the dots from like behavior to the brain and, and all of those being able to see all those different perspectives. So it feels feels natural. Yes, they do fit together well. And sometimes I need to take a break from both of them. And I have to be very conscious of my emotional and mental energy levels. So for example, on Wednesday, I was having one of those times when my brain was just like, no, I'm tired. I just want to sleep. I actually might have fallen asleep a little bit during an online class. I'm not going to say for sure. (laughs) (laughs) 
The mistake was because my office at home is in my spare bedroom. And so I was like, I'll just go sit on the bed, propped up on the pillows while I listen to this. And that was a bad, bad idea. (laughs) So I was like, okay, do I force myself to do a writing sprint or what do I do? So that's when I ended up doing the yoga class and I felt much better afterwards. And then, as I told you before we were talking, I suspected that was probably the program to the kidney stone I woke up with yesterday. My body was telling me something is going wrong here. You need to rest. And so I was glad that I did. And then yesterday afternoon, after I was feeling better, I had this temptation of, okay, I canceled all my clients. I can get all of this stuff done. And it's like, no, no, I need to be, you know, because I have ADHD, you know, I need to get myself some recovery time because I had this incredibly painful experience this morning. And so I'm very glad I did because today I feel so much better. And I think it's because I did give myself Wednesday afternoon through yesterday to to recover and rest from this whole thing. Right. Yeah. I think that's something I've been very uh, grateful for with my own diagnosis and just being able to have so much more grace for myself on those days where I'm like, where my brain is just like, nope, you're not. You may have 25 things on your to-do list, but we're not doing any of them. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's fine. You know, today's just going to be that day. And in order for me to get productive sooner, I will, I have to just lean into that and just realize that that's happening for a reason. And there's so much of that. I feel like it's very common with ADHD in those moments of rest to start, like you're saying, like when your body's resting, your brain starts going into overdrive because it's like, okay, what are all the things I'm not doing? What are the things I'm going to do when I can get better? And what are, you know, and, and so many times I have clients who come to me who are like, um, you know, what's wrong with me that I'm not able to do stuff right now. And I'm like, well, what's going on in your life? And they're like, well, you know, I, I mean, even if there was nothing personal going on, we're living in a dumpster fire of a country right now. So you're just like, of course, none of us can get anything done. Like, all you have to do is like look at the front page of any newspaper and you're like, yeah, no wonder nobody's getting anything done right now. But I think, you know, we have that like that drive is always there of like, oh, I got to get all this stuff done. And so for me, it's been so much easier to recognize when that happens and be like, no, today, today's a rest day. So you might as well enjoy it. And let's, you know, binge on on an old show or something. <laughs> yes, that was that was yesterday. We got through uh, most of the second half of the second season of Buffy because I was in college and grad school and it was on originally. And of course I write urban fantasy. So I feel like I have missed this part, this very important part of my canon. It's funny because I find myself afterwards, like this morning, even thinking about, okay, I'm appreciating it probably more than I would have because I'm appreciating it as a writer and how they took some, so many of the expectations and twisted them. So you really don't know what's going to to happen with any one of these episodes that comes up. I mean, they did they did play the werewolf pretty straight, but the rest of it has been has been a lot of fun to notice. But yeah, it was allowing myself to do that. It's like okay, we're just going to sit and binge Buffy because my husband also wasn't feeling well yesterday, and I think we both benefited from it. But you mentioned the the drive to keep going. That was one of the things that when I was going back through Better Sleep for the Overachiever, reading that part about how overachievers feel like they have that constant drive, like that constant whirring motor in the middle of their chest. And it's like, okay, that's not just overachievers. That's definitely the ADHD as well. Yeah. So, I, you know, I actually, you just reminded me, I never got to really ask you about like, what, what were some of those things in the book when you went back through this lens where you were like, oh yeah, maybe this is more ADHD than just simply overachieving. Like, how do we even start to parse and, and figure out like, what is what that's, that's a bigger, much bigger question. <laughs> it is. And I think it's, and it comes to the point of, we can't make them mutually exclusive. There is definitely a lot of overlap. And just because you have ADHD doesn't mean you can't be achievement oriented. It just might mean that you have to get some more different tools in your toolbox. I was actually telling that to somebody this past weekend is like, I feel that since my diagnosis, I realize better the tools that I need and the skills that I need to develop to get around this. So thinking about the overlap, yeah, there's definitely that drive, the relaxation, the productive relaxation that you mentioned that, you know, for some of us, we need to often be doing something to relax. It's not just sitting around. Of course, there's this whole chapter on perfectionism which includes imposter syndrome. And, you know, we talk about, I talk about the bargains that we make with ourselves. If only I can do blank perfectly or do it right on the first time, then I will be happy. 
And I wonder if some of that comes from the messaging around ADHD that because you have this issue, you need to prove yourself, even if it's not necessarily stated outright. And so I think that drives into a lot of the perfectionism. And then, of course, there's that whole chapter on procrastination, which, as the chapter heading says, it was the last chapter for a reason because it required the most research. Yes, and ADHD uh, makes us great procrastinators. And so it's digging into that and figuring out, okay, what are we doing? And I have definitely found myself drawing more on some of those strategies that I talk about, especially the not falling into the trap of I have to do all the little things before I can do the big thing. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Right. And, and I think also like you were mentioning about finding the tools, uh, this, you know, just realizing that if something's not working, it's not, I'm not the problem. Right. I think that's been the biggest shift in, in, if I could think of like one thing that's been made the biggest difference is that my default is not what's wrong with me. My default is, okay, what do I need right now? And so I think that is so helpful in, in so many areas. Oh my goodness. I feel like I could probably talk to you for another hour. Um, <laughs> I have so many more questions and it's so interesting to think about a lot of these overlaps, right? Like, you know, and, and all the ways in which we had kind of identified ourselves as certain types of people before coming to an ADHD diagnosis and then being like, oh, right. Okay. It's, you know, there's a lot more happening beneath the surface here than just being like, oh, I'm an Enneagram seven, or I'm a highly sensitive person, or I'm, you know, all these ways that we kind of came to the ADHD uh, through these like earlier uh, identities. Um, anyway, uh, so if you could rename ADHD to something that's a little less confusing, what, what would you call it? I would call it variable executive function syndrome because that covers the fact that some, some days we are completely on point and we were able to get all of the things done. And some days we are depleted and we cannot and that the gap between the two is larger than it is for the neurotypical people. I like that. And now as a psychologist, like, you know, cause often I'll, you know, uh, we'll talk about on this podcast, we'll talk about the term disorder, right. And, and it kind of falls. Sometimes there's objection to the term disorder because it doesn't, it feels like it's pathologizing it just a, a type of brain. And then there's also a lot of uh, women who feel like we should keep the term disorder because it actually makes it see, you know, it, it's easier to seek treatment. It's easier to seek accommodations when it's taken seriously in the medical field. So what's the difference between syndrome and disorder in terms of like the DSM or just the medical field? So I believe, and I'm not entirely sure. I think that disorder is a defined problem with symptoms and outcomes and treatments, whereas syndrome is more nebulous and they tend to be diagnoses of exclusion, which a lot of times ADHD is a diagnosis of exclusion. We've ruled everything out. But we still have this collection of symptoms. So it's a syndrome. So for example, the probably the most famous one or one that a lot of people are most familiar with is irritable bowel syndrome, where you know they're still trying to figure out where it comes from. Why is it so variable in presentation? Why does it flare up? So I believe that, you know, ADHD fits into, into that as well. I mean, you can still seek treatments for syndrome. They still have their own diagnosis codes. I think it just acknowledges that we haven't figured it all out yet. Yeah, I really, oh, I really like that. Cause you know, obviously anyone who's listened to this podcast, <laughs> realized, like that's the question I have all the time, which is like, what are we even talking about? Uh, because it feels like, this oftentimes it's, you know, a, a variable traits based on, you know, similarities in our brains, but dissimilarities in our environment. And so it's interesting to me to sort of think about like, what's at the core of all of this, I need the answer, I need to figure out, um, you know, what is what is driving all of this. And I don't know if I ever will, but it's fun. It's fun. <laughs> asking the questions. Uh, so I really like that variable executive function syndrome. And it's also, you know, a nice Googleable uh, initialism too. <laughs> uh, awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Anna. It's been absolutely wonderful to kind of pick your brain and hear more about your own journey and, and all of your expertise. How can people find more of you and find you and also let us know how we can read some of your fiction too. Oh, absolutely. So you can find all about better sleep for the overachiever at overachieverbook.com. And I believe the sign up for the newsletter where you would get that download for five sleep myths that might keep keeping you from sleeping is overachieverbook.com forward slash newsletter. 
I tried to make it easy. Hopefully that is actually it. My brain is like, I think so, but not boy, hello, ADHD moment. And then if you are curious about my fiction, my fiction website is ceciliadominic.com. That's C-E-C-I-L-I-A, dominic.com. I didn't realize or I forgot when I chose that that Cecilia can have two spellings. So it's the one with the I in the middle. And it's steampunk. It's urban fantasy. I have one book that is just contemporary metafiction. <laughs> That is rather hilarious because it was one of my earliest efforts and it was, it really shows a lot of my frustration as a writer and trying to get published. But yes, I have uh, three urban fantasy series, two are in progress, one of them is completed, and one steampunk series that is completed and one that is in progress. And then if you're curious about my practice, you can find us at sleepyinvatl.com. So sleepy, like I'm so sleepy, N-I-N. And then a lot of people refer to Atlanta as the ATL, T-H-E-A-T-L. So that's what we are. We are sleepyinvatl.com. And we are licensed in Georgia, but two of us are SIPAC providers, which means that we can see patients in select other states as well. Awesome. Oh, well, that's so great. And yes, I will have all I will double check the that link for the newsletter and make sure it's in the show notes. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, all of this, all of that, you don't have to remember it, you could go and, and find all of those links in the show notes. So well, thank you again, Anna. I'm so glad we finally were able to sit down and, um, and uh, yeah, thank you for your expertise. And it's been absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Katie. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of the podcast, please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I get it, then just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may still be struggling and don't even know why. And if you'd like to find out more about me and my one-on-one coaching for women with ADHD, head over to womenandadhd.com coaching. And you can always find that link in the show notes. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered that she is not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD and she is now on the path to understanding her neurodiversity and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.